All right, people, it's about that time. One more stop on the stop to the Red Wedding Season 3, Episode 8. We're almost done with Season 3, Pat. This is kind of crazy. I'm still, like, kind of tripping out just a bit here with the episode entitled Second Sons, Episode 28 of our 73-episode-long recap series covering this show. You got anything to say before we get going? Hey, listen, Dom, I think the Talking TV family is going to agree with me on this one, that uh, this show is full of second actors. Although we're seeing the first actor here tonight, uh, we're definitely going to see a second one uh, further down the line. Indeed, it's the latest in the Game of Thrones notorious recasting game, all of that and more. Stay tuned. Season 3, Episode 8, entitled Second Son. Now, this is a little bit of an interesting one because this is one of those episodes where, as, as an episode in and of itself, just based on where it is placed within the season and as a whole, you wouldn't think that this would be that important of an episode. But upon rewatching, I got to say, this ended up being like a tremendously important episode for a couple of different reasons. Because, yeah. Dude, dude, I'm just going to say it right now, like... I, I put it on this morning. Like I woke up. First thing I did was I put it on Game going. of Thrones. And I was like, oh, yeah, the last couple of episodes have been a slog. So I'm just going to wake up, get through it, and that's it. Dude, I, I basically almost jumped like through a couple episodes. Like, try to, like, this got me excited. Yeah, it's uh, for crazy. What's going to happen next week? It's this episode. Crazy was a banger, yeah. uh, if you want to call it that. Absolutely, because the crazy thing, right, is we're, we've been hyping it up all season, right? Once we pretty much got past the halfway point, we're like, okay, the last two episodes, they were good, but they were kind of a little bit slow, you know? And so you're constantly just waiting for, the in hindsight of the show, waiting for the Red Wedding to happen. And then you watch this episode, you're like, holy fuck, all this happens in this episode? Like, all, all the shit that happens in this episode, I completely forgot about. Because this is the beginning of the R of the Aria Hound segment, which I don't know why, but I always feel like that that happens like a lot earlier than it does. I keep forgetting that it really doesn't start until this episode obviously Tyrion and Santa's wedding ultimately but you also get the whole Melisandre Gendry leech scene which unintentionally sets up for like all the death that we're about to see happen to all the three characters that she named ultimately and then the ending scene which again is so often forgot about but this is the episode that first shows like what weapons are effective against white walkers these white walkers that we've seen hyped up for the first two seasons ultimately and this is the one that shows oh these things are killable definitely you know and like there's all this important crazy stuff that happens and it's it's honestly kind of it's honestly kind of like surprising almost and i don't i don't know why do you think that is well, first of all, I'm going to point out Eric in the uh, comments. He's saying that Game of Thrones is never a slog. But hard uh, disagree there. You know, <laughs> hard disagree there. This is coming from like one of the biggest Game of Thrones fans there is. Hard li- disagree. Li- listen, there. I-, I think one of it has to do with the uh, you know hindsight. You know, we we've already gone through the show two, three times. We're going through it like a fourth time talking about it here on the channel. Uh, you know, I think it's one of those things like some episodes are better than others. Uh, yeah, they're all good. I think if, if you watch them straight through and you kind of binge the show, uh, you're not going to feel that slog. But when you know a lot of the stuff, there's basically just awesome scenes. Uh, and then some of the episodes, they just don't have that overall uh, pacing and excitement. And I think that last couple episodes had great scenes. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but this one, basically, just the way it was put together, everything just kind of uh, one after the other. Uh, everything was exciting. Uh, I think it, it's the last episodes focused on character. 
this focused on uh, basically events and action and moving the story forward. So, uh, yes, there's a lot of world building at times and it's awesome. Uh, but sometimes it just world building can be low energy uh, and you're just waiting for the shoe to drop uh, like it did this episode. Absolutely. Yeah. So and yes, Eric, also it is. That is correct. Yes. Francis from Deadpool is in this one. I always find that funny. Like, was there a point where this dude was Ed Scrine? Because I feel like the problem was right. He had this one bit on obviously this season, obviously as Dario before he gets recast ultimately by Michelle Huseman in the next season. Ironically enough, another dude that would go on to be be a huge show. Obviously, it's one of the five siblings in the first season of uh, the Haunting series, Haunting of Hill House. He's the main dude in that one the second dario then he obviously goes and does the transporter reboot movie that they do in 2015 and then obviously his biggest claim to fame is his deadpool and then also i think he was in that alita battle angel movie i don't know he's a really good actor but i always feel i don't know what it is i think he's just got those like facial features and like there's just something inherently untrustworthy about this guy and i feel like that's translated across like movie producers as well i don't know but um as far as getting this started we're gonna spend a lot of time with daenerys and essos this season like i said last episode was like the the beginning of this obviously this season was cool but like this is like low-key like a really big daenerys season just in general so but we got one scene in order to kick off this episode yeah, first the show yeah. opens up with the rock Dwayne, right, with, no with, it's not Dwayne the rock but not, uh, not Dwayne the rock, <laughs> not not, a, not it's a different rock Rocky Johnson. <laughs> yeah it's, I, it's I, a, I, I wonder if it was his dad the boulder or a son the pebble yeah, no, this, this is uh, just a stationary rock that Arya is going to use to kill the hound. And yep. uh, basically, it, she sneaks up on him in the morning and raises it above his head. And then he wakes up and looks her dead in the eyes and says, I'll give you one blow and it better do the job because otherwise you're in for a world of hurt. And I'm paraphrasing there. But yeah, uh, Arya soon <laughs> realizes uh, this ain't the moment yes. uh, to take out the hound. And as it turns out, it's ultimately like kind of worked better to her advantage if she does keep the hound alive because she learns to put her petty uh well not petty but her grievances with the hound aside once she realizes well you know he kind of gives her this monologue ultimately it's like you know it's like you know you're, you're the truth is you're not so good here on your own you might want to stick with me just in general i'm going to look out for you and then she's and then she thinks that he's taking her to the black water because she thinks that he's taking her back to king's landing he's like king's landing what the hell he's like fuck king's landing i'm not going back there he's like i'm giving you is like as much as your precious brotherhood wants he's like no i'm taking you to the to the twins where um what's it called where i'm gonna i'm gonna sell you to your brother yeah. and your mother and the word the word of 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 marriage has spread across the countryside and so he's looking for a little reward by returning Arya to the Starks uh, at this wedding and that's where they're going and, and basically yeah this scene uh, essentially has the hound uh, tell Arya like listen it was basically me who stood between Sansa uh, you know getting assaulted and ending up with her throat cut um, so you might want to just trust me a little bit. Uh, there's worse people to have met, you know, on the road, uh, in these dangerous areas. And, you know, the hound basically says he's not a threat to her. He's basically has his agenda, which is to get some sort of re- reward. Uh, but other than that, he's going to make sure that she gets to where she got to go. Um, you know, so it's, a it should be an on. Uh, easy truce, uh, but a truce nonetheless. Exactly, and it's a pairing that ultimately leads to, like, again, one of the best pairings on the entire show. You know, we talked about Jamie and Brienne all this season, but next season we get Arya and the Hound, ultimately. You know, we don't spend as much time in the Riverlands next season as we do this season, for obvious reasons, but this is kind of unintentionally, like, one of the better pairings. Here you have one person who... Uh, ultimately has been defined by trauma and just kind of needs an outlet to like let some of that trauma out. And here you have another person who is also defined by the trauma of their past. Ultimately, and it creates like kind of this really weird synergy for two people that like should kind of hate each other, but end up like having this really impressionistic bond. And even though it is a moment that is totally original, original to the show. And again, it is in an episode that is so been so heavily bastardized at this point. I will say that the way that Arya and the Hounds arc pays off 
in uh, the bells at the end of the show when he kind of tells her, you know, you need to go because otherwise you're just going to be damaged and dead inside like me. And like that, that moment at the end, like that, that really is like truly satisfying and like surprisingly like a really touching way to like kind of end their their story arc. Like I have a lot of complicated thoughts in the finale just in general because there's so much that I love in there in addition to so much that I hate in there. But it's it's really interesting kind of, with, you know, how this one little scene, it's the one brief scene that we get. This is another one of those episodes that opens and closes with like the one brief scene. But it's it's really interesting, and I think it's a, it's a really awesome setup for where we're going to go next. So next we have three big storylines. Again, this is kind of – I like to call this episode like kind of like – let's call it catching up on all the B-plots. You know, we don't have any more gratuitous scenes of Theon being tortured. You don't spend any time with John and the Wildlings. You don't have anything of Rob and his journey towards the twins. Um, not, nothing like that. You get three big storylines. You get Essos with Daenerys. You get um, Dragonstone with catching up on with, with Stannis and Davos, who we really haven't seen that much of this season. And you get King's Landing with Tyrion and Sansa's wedding. So we start off in Essos. Daenerys is ultimately making her next ploy against Yunkai. She learned last season from the Yunkai, last episode from the Yunkai slave owner, that they have many friends. So she ultimately, through Jorah and Barrison, managed to figure out who exactly that is that they are in <laughs> yeah. league with. Listen, listen. It, it shouldn't have been that hard because apparently they walked around the side of the uh, city and they saw a mercenary camp. And it's like, oh, oh, oh I, guess, wow. I guess there's other That's friends. Crazy. There they uh, are. So. It didn't really take them that long to figure it out. Uh, they're the second sons, a uh, band of mercenaries. Yeah, hence the uh, title. Exactly. They, they uh, agreed to fight for Yonkai. And, you know, they're led by um, this guy who's, I yes. guess, the Miro, bastard of a titan. titan. A titan's bastard, which is just a nickname. Like, she meets these three guys ultimately in her tent, you know, just to kind of gauge them, see where they are. Ultimately, the goal is she wants to get them to break contract with Yunkai uh, and obviously come over to her, the winning side. She, or kind of her wager, her bet is that, look, if this guy is as full of himself as she thinks, she's not going to want to lose to a woman. Yeah, and this <laughs> this so Titans bastard, man, this it, guy would have been canceled man, so many times. I feel bad for this um, actor ultimately in hindsight. Well, listen, he did a great job being one of the most sleazy people I've ever seen in Essos, uh, yes. or in Forget this world Essos, of Game of Thrones. Show. How about that? Yeah, uh, number one, I think. You know, I'm going to be hard pressed to figure out who is uh, sleazy. Uh, you know. I, Kind of the equivalent of trailer trash, so to speak. Uh, you know, or should I say, it, down it's there. yeah, like you know, he's the Game of Thrones version of the Trailer Park Boys or, or whatever that show is from Canada. You know, uh, <laughs> oh, they, they could basically, they yeah, Canada. they can bring him back and they can, uh, you know, they could have a uh, medieval version of that show right here in Essos. Um, but hey. I wanted to say, like, this was a great scene. It's It just shows uh, Daenerys in command of, you know, her machinery, you know, her armies and, you know, the, the diplomatic side of things. So uh, for the most part, uh, yeah, it's the, the Titan's Bastard is not having any of it. You no. know, it's just just wants to, you know, hey, once we beat your armory, uh, maybe, you know, the second sons and I share everything. Maybe we'll share you. Well, uh, that was one of the aggressive lines yeah. uh, that I can say here on the channel without uh, feeling well, sleazy what's, myself. What's interesting about this scene is that you get these three different kind of approaches, right? Dario, who's kind of remaining silent. Obviously, this is our introduction to Dario Naharis, who would eventually join Daenerys' camp, obviously portrayed by Ed Scrine, ultimately for only this episode and the next two that he's in uh, before he's famously recast next season with Michelle Huseman. Probably, I think the biggest reason why people talk about his recasting is because it's the most notable, because Tommen, the whole thing about all the other, Game of Thrones has famously had seven different recasts, uh, sorry, eight 
eight different recastings throughout the, the throughout the entirety of the show. But the thing is that with the majority of the other recastings, the the characters that were recast really were only like background players. They didn't really have that many moments of dialogue, and when they did, they were like very brief. Like you never really noticed the differences between the mountain between the three different actors that played the mountain. Barrack Don Daring got one scene before he was recast. Same with Marcella and Tom, and they were pretty much like kept on the back burner. And then by the time they were brought in and they were different actors, you didn't even realize it. Ultimately, same with the three eyed Raven. He was only in one episode. But the thing that's so notable about Dario's recasting is that Dario like had a pretty like major part ultimately in this season, you know, just as far as like kind of the role that he plays both within Daenerys and within like kind of, you know, the transition for Yunkai ultimately. It's crazy, like again, in hindsight, where if Yunkai feels like it's gonna be so important and then how they solve that at the end of this season, and obviously then how we yeah. spend then obviously how we see what happens with Marine next season, how that goes for like where Daenerys is gonna stay for the next two seasons ultimately. But Dario yeah, I would say I would say his recasting is as noticeable as Don Cheadle in Iron Man Two. Yeah, you know, it, it's one of those things where uh, people still talk it, about Terrence Howard to this day, thirteen years later. Yeah, exactly. So you know, it, it's one of those things where uh, you know it's an important character. Well, to a certain degree, I, I think to it's a character that's in the forefront of Daenerys storylines uh, for a few seasons, and then um, once Daenerys sort of, uh, you know, flies off with her dragon and, and kind of wanders around for a little bit on her own, uh, the character sort of gets minimized at that point. But, uh, you know, I think for the, uh, you know, uh, in this particular sequence, um, you know, just getting to know the character that he fights for love and beauty. And, uh, I think the scene where he's talking with his fellow mercenaries where, um, you know, he basically brings up what he fights for, you know, it's, it's, uh, women, you know, basically who want to make love with, with you. And, and that's one of the reasons to live. And then, uh, the other one is basically killing someone that, uh, is fully determined to kill you. Um, you know, those are the thrills of life, uh, that he seeks. And I think they did a really great job setting up this character and getting, uh, you know, some sort of warrior like this at Daenerys' side. 100%. And the biggest takeaway for me within that scene, ultimately, both with the scene where they meet with Daenerys and their scene later on at the tent, is it really establishes, surprising enough, in only one scene, ultimately, because this is the with the other two captains, right? Miro and the other guy who I'm not even going to bother to remember his name. It's the only scene that we really get to really get to know how these guys work, ultimately. Because the whole thing about how they change this from the book, this is actually the whole thing is they changed a lot of this from the books, ultimately. So the, Daenerys in the books ultimately meets with two of the um, Yunkai uh, mercenary troops. Uh, the second sons were actually led by a different guy in the books that were led by Brown Ben Plum who ultimately ends up betraying her and going back to Yunkai and Meereen once they end up like rejoining in order to fight with her in the later in the later seasons and books. Uh, Dario and his guy Miro um what's it called Miro and the other guy they are leaders of the of the Storm Crows which is a completely different troop. But the thing that I love that's established here is a kind of their each motivations as far as what they get out of it. Miro Miro is only in it for like you know in order to kind of buff up his own ego. He doesn't view women as you know people he only views them as property ultimately he doesn't take Daenerys or her conquest seriously he believes only in their might the other guy Prendal something his whole thing is in the logistics and the technicalities he's very much about you know you're in your place you're in your place and the whole thing is his whole thing that he establishes is that look we can't break contract to join you because if we do our whole our whole we we only have a reputation to go off Right. If we break that, that's that's our only word. You know, we're good. And Daenerys obviously makes the ploy. It's like fight with me and you'll never have to worry about it again. But Dario is the only one that seems remotely interested because Dario, I think about this guy is that he seems to be the first character that we've met in this universe that fights for something 
other than himself, which is strange to consider that he's the leader of a mercenary troop. But like I've always, I've often found this with just bounty hunter kind of figures in general, you know, loners, drifters, people who don't really belong to any one side or cause ultimately, which is that they ultimately kind of believe in themselves to an extent that they kind of understand the depths and pitfalls of humanity. So they can almost like kind of learn to appreciate things in a way that a lot of people, others who are like kind of trapped within these systems can ultimately. And that's why I think that in a strange way, that's why her and Daenerys's relationship, him, oh, I said her, <laughs> him and Daenerys's relationships is ultimately one of the more interesting and more underrated relationships. I think it's kind of confusing because the amount of sexual activity we see between the two is very, very minimal. Ultimately, I think we only get like one or two scenes with them throughout the entirety of it. But the whole thing is that Daenerys is a character that has only been marked by tragedy. And so her whole, so her whole thing is only ultimately about like, you know, what's next as far as who she can liberate and make sure that the, that the trauma that happened to her doesn't happen to really anybody else. And Dario kind of comes in and shows her, it's like, hey, you can, you know, still enjoy life just a little bit. You know, life doesn't always have to be so super miserable and so super dour. And you have to, like, dedicate yourself to this cause. You can, like, chill back and enjoy it a little bit. And and that's, and you can tell that's, how, that's his philosophy that's kind of shown here. And it's shown brilliantly, obviously, in the next scene where they obviously pick their coin because Miro brings up the idea. It's like, look, we can end this. Right now, ultimately, we won't have to worry about a battle because obviously the thing that's shaping up is Daenerys. They're going to have to fight the second sons before, obviously, they can fight with Yunkai. And the interesting thing, obviously, here that also separates Dario from the crew is that Dario easily sees through Sir Barrison's lie. Sir Barrison says that they have 10,000 um, Unsullied, but Dario knows that they only have 8,000. So that immediately separates him from the other two. Yeah, again, a perfect dialogue. Like Daenerys basically responds and says, oh, even if your count were to be true, uh, doesn't the dynamic remain the same? I have more men than you do. Uh, so, you know, in war, that means I'm going to beat you and you're going to die. So yes. I, I think Daenerys plays it off, uh, very quickly, very, um, you know, uh, sleek. And you know, for the most part, we're, we're just seeing in this season, uh, her diplomatic skills, uh, and you know, her command of her army, uh, go through the roof. She basically, has learned and, you know, is really on the track to being a great leader. And we see it uh, all throughout this season. Absolutely. 100%. And like, for me, the biggest thing too, ultimately is once obviously they draw a coin, just how like that last act is set up for her, for her arc in this episode, I should say is set up so well, where you see him walking through the unsullied camp dressed as the unsullied, right? And you don't know whether he's going to kill her or not. He goes in. Miss Sandy and Daenerys are having some conversation about, you know, uh, how how, uh, how she speaks Dothraki. Turns out she's pronouncing this one phrase wrong this entire time, ultimately, because, again, she learned from Daria. And Daria is obviously no longer with us. But now she's got Miss Sandy. And Miss Sandy is a trained scribe in languages. So she knows, like, how to speak all of them properly. Yeah, Daria, I think she mentions 19 in the scene. Something like that. Yeah, she knows yeah. a ridiculous amount of languages, ultimately. And, again, I think that's even more impressive considering the fact that Miss Sandy in the books is supposed to be, like, a nine-year-old girl, ultimately. Not, like, you know, Natalie Emanuel. But... The biggest thing for obviously Dario sneaks in, he surprises her and he shows her, he shows off the two heads of the other captains, reveals that it's like, yeah, I only do what I want. Nobody tells me what to do. And he ultimately proves that, yeah, Daenerys has won him over surprisingly, not for any other reason other than he is states that he has fallen in love with her and he doesn't expect her to believe him at once. Not at all. And all that he says is that, um, look, I do what I want ultimately, um, what's it called? And you have the righteous cause and I've fallen in love with you ultimately. So, and she manages to get his, his allegiance and the allegiance of the storm crows ultimately. So what's kind of your takeaway from that whole sequence? 
Uh, you know, I just want to go back to what you said about the, uh, you know, sexual tension between the two of them. And I, I think this is one of the long, uh, you know, ongoing storylines throughout the whole series that's done really well. So, you know, the fact is he sneaks into her chamber when she's taking a bath, uh, you know, tells them not to scream, has a, a very civil conversation with them. Uh, she, you know, is emboldened to basically stand up uh, fully naked in front of him, you know, get dressed, continue the conversation. And it's it's one of those things where it's clear that the two of them, uh, you know, are, are sort of on the back burner. Uh, this is what they're thinking about, even though they're talking about uh, war and the Second Sons, etc. And I think going to your earlier point of, you know, just how they are in this relationship and, uh, you know, ultimately Daenerys kind of uses him not only for his, uh, you know, small military, uh, you know, advantage, uh, command abilities, uh, you know, bi- you know, the mercenaries that he br- brings to the cause. Uh, basically, she kind of uses him as, you know, someone that she uh, can be intimate with. And, you know, it, as soon as the, uh, you know, all the armies have to move to Westeros. Uh, guess what? You know, he's the first one to, you know, that does, or he's the last person, uh, you know, in the line of tickets on that ship. And, uh, yeah. there's no more tickets left. Exactly. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I got to go actually marry, you know, uh, a rich Lord. Exactly. Someone, someone that has a name, someone that has a uh, titles. Uh, so I can't really take a, uh, you know, uh, a Mr. Wife or, or whatever it is. Right. Uh, you know, again, um, it's, it's another one of those situations that just makes me think about the last couple seasons that I'm like, man, were they really as off as everyone said they were? Like, again, like, I still don't think that the storylines and the way that they wrapped up are that bad. It's just a matter of like how they were executed ultimately. Because again, it's like a consequence that I did have ultimately is would Daenerys have acted any differently in those last couple seasons if she had Daria with him? Because after a certain point in the later couple seasons, like around seasons five and six, it did seem like, because at that point, Barristan is dead. Jorah had been exiled. How many times I lost count. Tyrion was her counselor, but we obviously know that Tyrion ultimately did not prove to be one of the better counselors for her. And it just makes you wonder, like, yeah, because after a certain point, Daria was really the only one that wouldn't tell her just exactly what she wanted to hear ultimately. And he had a really unique perspective into that instance. It always makes me wonder, I'm like, man, what would have happened? if Dario had been with her those last few seasons in, in, in Westeros rather than having been left in Essos. But ultimately, we saw what happened there. And, you know, Dario is one of the many storylines that is left unresolved by the end of this show. But yeah, it's a really awesome character introduction. And ultimately, if I'm not mistaken, I think this is like the last of the instances of like introductions of like major characters that will play a part going forward for like the remainder of the show I think with the exception of the sand snakes, but the problem is the sand snakes are so badly bastardized that they try to cut them out of the show like as quickly as humanly possible. So that really makes Dario kind of like in a weird way the last like major uh, character installment that we meet that like really ends up playing like a major part. Um, so uh, yeah, so moving on ultimately, our next of our three big storylines we have this episode, Dragonstone. Oh, oh man. Oh man, like Yeah. So so the the best part about this is it starts off with uh you know Davos in his prison cell trying to read. He's he's doing better. Well, that's he's not how still it starts. That's not how uh, it starts. Is it, that's that's definitely how it starts. No, it's not. Right? It starts with Melisandre and Gendry arriving on Dragonstone and then them going to see Stannis. Well, Oh, and they have like a brief yeah, conversation. And Stannis, yeah, and Stannis looks at him. He's like half Robert, half Lobor, kind of like to prove him. It's the it's the whole the whole thing that's being set up there is because for the longest, the interesting thing about this storyline is again because we spent so little time on Dragonstone in comparison to the last season, or at least what feels like a comparison to the last season, is that we really 
haven't actually like spent that much time. So we don't actually know what Melisandre is planning. We have an idea of it, but we don't actually know what Melisandre is planning. And this is the episode that kind of like confirms what it is, which is that she has got this giant ritualistic sacrifice plan using, um, you know, using some of... Um, using some of, you know, the Baratheon bloodline, ultimately. She states she can't use Stannis because Stannis is too weak, quote-unquote, or, or doesn't have enough of it. But she used someone, like, you know, fresh and youthful and vibrant in order to pull off this sacrifice, which at the end is revealed that she's going to use King's blood and sacrifice them to the fire in order to ensure that all of Stannis' enemies end up vanquishing in strange, mysterious ways, ultimately. Some of them get, yeah. you know, a little delayed so, over time, but... So I, I think the main thing is, you know, uh, regardless, Stannis goes to Davos' side uh, because... Because he doesn't quite uh, know how to process what's going on. Because, you know, in, in one hand, you know, he understands that the Lord of Light exists. He's seen uh, these sort of miracles and he knows what's happening. And in the other hand, you know, he has sort of that Ned Stark honor that kind of, you know, prevents him from fully being all in. And that's the reason why he goes up to Davos. Uh, that's the reason why he sort of, uh, when Davos says, I'll never raise a hand to Melisandre, but that doesn't mean I won't, uh, you know, speak out against her. And, you know, they come to an arrangement where essentially Davos is going to be uh, sort of the other uh, advisor to Stannis uh, and make sure that, you know, Stannis doesn't really go too far over the line uh, with all this uh, magic stuff. Uh, and that's that's the real reason why he's uh, freed from uh, the jail and, and the prison. Well, here, here's, um, the, here's the interesting thing about that sequence, which I which I do love. Again, it's probably one of my favorite moments of the entire show, just between Stannis and Davos and of this episode easily, which is where <coughs> it's really one of the only times and one of the first times that we actually get to see Stannis like really as a human being, ultimately. He has this really humane moment, and Davos even calls him on that, which is that, it's like, look, you could have come to see me yesterday, you could have come to see me the day before, but you're coming to me now. Because you knew that I would caution against this because you knew that I would know that this is wrong, which means that you know, which means that you're feeling ultimately in some strange way that, that this is wrong, you know? And he's kind of like trying to appeal to Stannis' moral side, but Davos really doesn't know what's in for it yet because the whole thing that's happened is, is that as – um because of this arrangement that they've come to was that Davos demands a demonstration because Stannis states is like, look, you can say all that you want about that, right? And you're innocent. Everything that you say is right and 100% correct, you know, because he brings up the comparison to Renly. Davos is like, Renly wronged you. This boy's done nothing to you, though. This boy is, you know, he has your blood, you know, and he's like, oh, why should I care about some, you know, baseborn, um, baseborn boy that Robert um, betted once? And he's like, because this boy is your, is, has your blood at the end of the day. And, they, and then that's like kind of a running theme throughout these scenes, which is, it's, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the happenstance of chance, ultimately, because that plays obviously a big part within Melisandre's religion, ultimately, as she comes to later state in the later couple of seasons. And the biggest thing for me that I take away from it is that, okay, this is kind of Stannis both morally excusing himself while at the same time kind of like rekindling any sense of humanity. Because that's always been the interesting thing about Davos being kind of the viewpoint into Stannis. You know, this goes also back to the books in that we don't get Stannis or Melisandre as like the narrating chapters. We get Davos as it because Davos is kind of like, you know, the human edge, the guy that we can relate to, kind of for a, a lack of a better word, the, the everyday working man, ultimately. And... Uh, you know, what's it called? He's like, all right, Stannis, like, you believe this, right? And Stannis states that, and describes the vision that he's seen to her. And he's like, I, is like, I never pretended to really be a true believer, but when you've seen the things that I've seen, how can you deny the truth? And so Davos is like, all right, I demand a demonstration. And that leads to 
The next scene. Oh, where- okay. So that leads to a uh, clearly HBO uh, sex HBO, scene. Yeah, uh, HBO just is like, because, I, just I because. Wonder, I wonder if they have a quota you know, gr- gratuitous scene. They're like, look, we need a certain amount of gratuitous sex scenes in each episode. We got a yeah, quota that we got to hit. You know, we haven't seen Littlefinger's uh, brothel in a Little, while, so let's seen Little uh, Littlefinger yet. So yeah, 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 so let's just uh, do it in uh, you know uh, what is it, uh, Dragonstone, uh, with Melisandre. So uh, basically, uh, this is actually <laughs> they do it as a reference to Theon too, uh, because uh, she you know seduces Gendry, throws him on the table. They're they're kind of getting into it, and then into it. Um, basically she gets him naked, gets him pumped up, and then the leeches come out and uh you know she puts two on the chest well, and, first she ties them uh, up and then and then, well yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, you know it, it's gotta, gotta, um, i was about to say gotta include all all the things that are happening here yeah but i think there's a, a line where gendry's like oh don't put it there and it, she's <laughs> throwing a, a a leech uh you know uh, like, down no, down below so it's it's, it's it's one of those things where i think i think they're purposely referencing theon uh, and I think they do it at least twice in this episode. I think this is the first occurrence, um, you know, where the leech is just kind of thrown there. Um, but more or less, she uh, lets the leeches get some blood. And then uh, this must be the worst part about it is uh, Stannis and Davos come in the room. They walk in as this yeah. is and, and she, on the she's bed. casually getting dressed and everything. And and then it's like Melisandre just has a conversation yeah. with Stannis and Davos as if Gendry's not even there with, with them. Davos is watching there. I was like, damn, I know I wanted a demonstration, but not like this. Yeah, and basically uh, she gets the leeches off of Gendry. They, they've taken enough King's blood and they, uh, you know, put them in the fire and Stannis uh, says off the names, right? The names. And, and the names Rob the Stark. Usurper. The usurper uh, Rob Stark, the usurper Balon Greyjoy, the usurper Joffrey Baratheon. Not necessarily exactly. in that order either. I find it interesting because if I'm remembering correctly, the whole big thing is that Stannis does it. Again, I, I don't necessarily like know what the, I don't necessarily know like how like kind of accurate they were, but the whole interest thing of interest here is that again, it's the rule of threes. Ultimately, there's this weird underlying theme throughout the entire book series and this entire series of the rule of threes. Ultimately, but kind of how they can get like misconstrued and misthrown out of place. Where in the books, the whole thing is Balon. If I'm remembering correctly, in the books, it's Balon first then Joffrey, then Rob. And the whole thing is it's supposed to be a big surprise and you're caught because again, at that point, you're still like kind of on the page of like, oh man, shouldn't Rob and Stannis be allies ultimately? Why are, why does he consider Rob, you know, a usurper? And then obviously the whole thing that goes is that Rob dies first at the Red Wedding. Then they receive word of Balon Greyjoy's death ultimately in the Iron Islands. And then obviously it's Joffrey's wedding and he dies. So all three of them do die. In the show, he orders it in the order um, Rob first, then Balon, then Joffrey. Rob dies first. Then you have Joffrey's wedding at the beginning of next season where he dies. And then Balon doesn't die for another two seasons because the creators forgot about the Greyjoy arc. And then they were like, oh, yeah, I guess we probably should bring this back into play, you know? So it's definitely a little bit interesting. Obviously, it's definitely a case of like another Betty Off and goof. There are a lot of those like kind of throughout this show. But I find it really interesting where... Again, like there, there's obviously this kind of like sacred law kind of within obviously just storytelling in general, ultimately within kind of this religion as far as like how it goes. And obviously this is supposed to be proof ultimately that the Lord of Light's powers do work. But we obviously see in the finale of this season that that doesn't matter for Davos because Davos' whole thing is like, look, if the leeches work, that's enough. Why do we have to kill this entire, this whole ass person? Why can't we just let him go? And that ultimately, again, it's the humanist in Davos could just never ever bow bow its head but uh i definitely think it's really interesting i don't know what are your thoughts on just the whole leeches in the order of things uh i you know i don't think the order really matters that much you know to be honest with you I, I, the rule of three the the whole uh 
you know, uh, you know, you see the first occurrence, second occurrence, and then typically the third occurrence is something you don't expect. Right. Uh, that's sort of a, a base storyline trick. And, uh, you know, I enjoy, you know, Hey, it's, it's pretty much in, in a lot of stories. So I, I, it's not surprising to find it here. Um, but I don't, I don't read it too much into the order of things. It's just, uh, they said the names and, you know, we're going to see them. And, um, you know, the Greyjoy one, I think, is just, you know, it's tied to the book. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, it, it didn't really pay off because the, the storyline lingers for like two seasons right. until he gets thrown exactly. over the and ling- Well, the crazy thing, too, again, and this is another instance of like, again, like kind of where for me, at least I know everyone doesn't like the last two seasons. But for me, where season five for me was kind of like the beginning of the end for Game of Thrones as far as like its quality. And then season six, people briefly forgot about the problem of season five. But like I said, we'll get to it when I get to season because I have a lot. A lot of problems. I'm not going to lie. I might have more problems with season five than I do with the last two seasons because the problem ultimately that emerges is the whole leeches thing and what comes of that is supposed to be the middle act of Stannis' arc, right? The first act of Stannis' arc you have is attempted on the Blackwater. That fails miserably, right? Then you have his whole thing in a Storm of Swords and a Dance of Dragons where Storm of Swords, he does the whole thing with the leeches, right? His three enemies do die. They essentially work ultimately. You know, the, the blood magic, he proves it. It works. Rob, Balon, and Joffrey all die. In instances that Stannis ultimately has nothing to do with, all without Stannis having to lift a finger. Then Davos does the thing with Gendry. Again, it's a different bastard in season five. Um, what's it called? what's it called? It's a different bastard in the books. Davos sets him free. Stannis is praying to execute Davos. Davos reads him the letter from the wall stating, okay, this is what's happening up north of the wall. This is where we're needed. And Stannis is like, okay, if I'm going to prove myself as the true king, I'm going to do what no other king is doing. And I'm going to take this threat at the wall seriously. He goes north to the wall. Then he has the whole thing where he's trying to reunite the north against the Bolton. And the problem is Stannis' arc leaves off on a cliffhanger arguably one of the biggest cliffhangers, right? Because the whole thing is that happened. Stannis' arc with the Dance of Dragons ends. He is preparing to march on Winterfell. But unlike the books, Ramsay never does the sneak attack. Stannis' army just gets stuck in the snow, ultimately. So the problem, ultimately, with how that translates into the show is that they use that as an excuse to kind of get Stannis out of the way. So I think that's another big reason why Stannis' arc feels so unfulfilled in the show as opposed to the books is because they clearly had a lot more planned with Stannis in a way that maybe they didn't necessarily with John the way that John ultimately gets like that really kind of big catharsis in season six that it felt like was meant for Stannis ultimately but I always found that really interesting because like it's the biggest thing because I'm like the way that it leaves off with Stannis I'm like wow this literally almost feels like an afterthought when this was clearly meant to be like the climax of his arc like this is his big moment this is going to be the big is, is, I, I have I still have this feeling ultimately that he did end up winning in Winterfell and that the whole thing is that his victory over Winterfell in Winterfell was supposed to make up for his loss the Blackwater but I don't know like what's kind of your take on that uh, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves, uh, Dom. I, I think we could spend the whole uh, next 30 minutes talking about uh, Stannis and his entire arc in the series. Uh, I kind of agree with you on, on a lot of those points. Like, uh, you know, Stannis is this great character. And, you know, I think a lot of my friends, when we were watching it, uh, you know, uh, week to week when the show was first airing, uh, you know, we, we kind of thought uh, Stannis would go the distance and be right. a big player throughout well, the in series. A way he did, because the strange thing is that of the five kings from the original War of the Five Kings, he's the only survivor. Yeah, but, you know, like... Basically, Brienne, uh, you know, get, gets her revenge uh, off screen. Off screen. You know, and, and it's one of those Only things where... Only worse than getting killed on Game of Thrones, getting an off screen death. Yeah, and so uh, it, one of those things where, like, um, 
Yeah, I, I think this whole amount of time that we spend with Stannis throughout the series, I think you're right. It's 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 not really as fulfilling as you would like it to be, uh, you know. And it, it's just because uh, certain things like this, you know, the leech thing uh, gets stretched out, and right. uh, he's really not a top tier character. Uh, although, you know, the viewers I, like me, you know, my friends. Uh, when we were watching this, you know, we felt like he was, uh, you know, a little more than he ended up being. So, you know, I, I think it's uh, one of those things where uh, it is what it is. And, you know, you just have to kind of live with it. Stannis is still a good character. Davos, uh, you know, is really an excellent character. And uh, I'm glad that he uh, really takes Stannis's place and goes towards the end of, of the show. Absolutely. Yeah. Davos easily still probably one of my favorite characters on the entire show. Still maintaining that humanist edge for Stannis ultimately even into next season. Uh, let's get to the last big storyline that we have before the end of the episode, which is King's Landing, which is, I will say, probably goes in the most surprising direction because it goes in a direction that I feel like nobody was expecting ultimately because you have this entire... King's Landing has been pretty much on the back burner of this entire season. You've been having this really interesting back and forth push and pull between the Lannisters and the Tyrells. They make one political ploy, then the other side makes a political ploy. And this is kind of like really the crux of it. Like they are wrapping up the whole King's Landing thing in here so that the King's Landing stuff in the finale really does feel like an epilogue ultimately where the finale plays out like with this big yeah. reaction. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's wedding season. And, it uh, is wedding here, season. Here it is. First, uh, first of a couple. And it's first up. This seems like it's going to be the most most problematic and then in hindsight it kind of turns out to be like the least dramatic in a strange way because it's the only wedding where nobody yeah. dies in a vicious brutally awful well, way yeah and we're talking about uh Tyrion and Sansa Tyrion and um and and you know I feel like Tywin has set it up to be like a you know a baseball game it's like now batting <laughs> you know for the Lannisters uh Tyrion up you know it's like now up to bat Tyrion uh strike yeah, it, strike one of the plate it's so uncomfortable, you know, Tywin and, and everybody going up to him and being like, you got to do your duty. You know, you got to uh, once you're married, you got to bed Sansa. And, it, you know, it's it clearly it weighs on Tyrion just as much as us as an audience. Uh, and he just keeps drinking. That's all he's going to do. Yep, that's all, all, he's gonna all do. evening we long. We haven't even gotten to the actual wedding where, again, it's not just Tywin, but everybody is just trying to set them up for failure and make this just as miserable oh, yeah. it's, as it's, humanly possible. Like, Tyrion tries to comfort Sansa. He does a terrible job. He doesn't want this. She clearly doesn't want this. Joffrey, of all people, is the one that has to walk her down the aisle since obviously her dad's out there to do it. Joffrey takes away the stool. He has to freaking bend yeah. her. At the very least, though, with all the people that are snickering, Tywin does is able to silence them with a look I, just, I love that one scene where you have the two extras that are snickering in the background i can just imagine what the what the first ad would tell them that day on set where it's like okay when charles looks at you you shut the fuck up like, he is essentially god in that scene and the minute that they do oh man those guys piped out oh, real it, quietly. It was, yeah it, it's perfect so you know it's just the, the the visual uh acting that you know he does just uh the glances the looks uh, everything in this whole sequence, it, it's phenomenal. Um, yeah, you know, I'm joking, but it, it's this is really the first sequence where Joffrey um, goes for uh, the juggler, so to speak. Like he yeah. is all out, you know, war with Tyrion in front yes. of everybody, uh, you know, taking the stool and kind of embarrassing him, um, you know, and then he wants to do the same thing to uh, both Tyrion Sansa. and Sansa at the party, right? You know, he takes Sansa aside and, and says, hey, 
ultimately at the end of the day, you marry Tyrion. And yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter what Lannister does this. Like, you know, I can just maybe, you know, stop by late at night, you know, he's going to be passed out drunk. Uh, and if, you know, you have anything to say about it, I'll just have my King's guard hold you down. Yeah. Uh, so he's like just brutally. Going for it. And, um, you know what it feels like? It's almost like a reminder. It's like, man, we haven't spent as much time with Joffrey. We haven't seen Joffrey just be as like purely completely awful this season. as He was last. Here's a reminder of how much you fucking hate this guy, you know? Yeah, well, he killed Roz. Like, I think that's the biggest thing that he's done in the last yeah. couple episodes. But, so brutal. Uh, yeah, like, he he has just become, um, you know, this this maniac. And I, I think it's, you know, Cersei understands this and tries to direct him. And, and he goes up to follow Sansa, and she grabs him and says, look, Marjorie's over there, you know, alone. You have to secure the right. relationship. And so you Cersei even tries to talk him down ultimately from it, where it's like, you know, it's like you should exactly. probably talk to your actual bride to be. He's like, I'll have a lifetime of that. I also didn't want to point out the two Cersei sequences in this episode, which are phenomenal. Ultimately, the first scene where Marjorie tries to buddy buddy up to her, and then Cersei oh, tells yeah. the story about the <laughs> reigns of Castamere, and, it, and uh, reigns of Castamere kind of reminding her, like, kind of keeping her in her place. Ultimately, she's like, kind of like, I know what you're doing here. You put your best foot forward. You failed. And now if you ever try to make a move and try to think of yourself kind of as on my level again, I'll have you smothered in your sleep. Again, it's just like yeah, no, the line, the line is you call you yeah. call me uh, my your, your sister again. I'll sm- uh, smother you. Ultimately shows the difference between the line and the rose. Cersei has no time for niceties, no. no time for diplomacy. She is all straightforward to the fact business. And what's even funnier is to see it afterwards where Loris, Loris just looks. I don't think I've seen anyone look more miserable. It's ironic because of the two people who are being tortured by this wedding. Somehow Tyrion and Sansa both don't look as miserable as Loris does, who is just not like a perpetual pouty face on ever since he's like found out that he's had to do these awful wedding arrangements that he has had no hand in, where Olena is just rattling off like how they're going to be related, like how each of the different children will be related once Marjorie oh, yeah. marries Joffrey and Loris marries uh, Cersei. And then he tries to talk with her afterwards. And he's just like, oh, my father was told me. It's just like, no one cares what your father once told like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's none of it. Yeah, Cersei is, uh, you know, she's in the zone. And I think, uh, you know, Joffrey is the only thing that's really um, a problem because she's there to control him and make sure that no, like, scene happens. Uh, but she can't. She can't control her son. She cannot uh, do sort of that one thing that her father expects her to do. And, you know, unfortunately, all the other stuff her father expects her to do, Mary Laura's. Uh, you know, make nice with the Tyrells. That's none of the things that she wants to do. And she's not afraid to let them uh, be aware of that. Uh, you know, so I think the whole wedding, she's just struggling to keep Joffrey in check, um, which unfortunately doesn't work whatsoever. Not uh, one bit. Because as we came to learn over the course of last yeah. season, if they're the, the one person who is more worse at their job than Joffrey is his king, is Cersei is being a mother to Joffrey. Because, oh man. Yeah, and, and and I will just say this: like uh, the fact is, uh, Joffrey, um, you know, once he does this uh, kind of threat to Sansa, he he turns to everybody and says, "Oh, let's do the the betting ceremony." You know, uh, let's take Sansa's clothes off and carry her to the bed and all this type of stuff. And Tyrion's like, "No, that's not going to happen. There's no betting ceremony." And Joffrey will just not stop. He's going to do this. He's going to force it to happen uh, until Tyrion, you know, takes a, a pick or a knife, I believe, knife probably, and stabs it on the table and says, you know, uh, basically, if you continue to do this, 
uh, when you get married, you will have a awesome woman. <laughs> you know, this is still um, one so, of my favorite scenes because Tyrion. Because the thing, this is this is not just from this one scene. This has been building yeah. up after a season. Tyrion had to spend all of last season cleaning up after Joffrey's mess. Then he has the whole way that he was treated after the Battle of Blackwater. Now he's had this kind of like slow, like kind of low key, off key, like trying to figure out and slowly coming to the realization that Joffrey almost had him killed for no reason other yeah. than the fact that he just doesn't like that his uncle was doing a better job. Now he humiliated him in front of yeah. the entire wedding for so no he, reason. He, he's drunk. And he is humiliated by Joffrey and he makes the threat. And the threat is, again, you know, in my mind, uh, a second reference to Theon and what happened last episode. So I I think they do a pretty decent job, you know, leaving the whole like brutal, sadistic stuff that uh, happened last episode, um, you know, with Ramsay and Theon. Uh, they make reference to it uh, by basically having other yeah. characters sort of, um, you know, uh, ref- reference that region. All, yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy, ultimately, how the, the amount of, like, strange dick references there are in this episode. Also, in a weird way, like, also subtle foreshadowing from this episode as well, with, uh, obviously, with Cersei telling Marjorie about the reigns of Casimir, ultimately. And we, we're all going to see how that plays out next episode. But ultimately, it, it almost leads to, like, some very violent blows that come from this episode. And again, in a weird way, foreshadowing what happens next season, where, again, when Joffrey dies, who's the first person everyone looks to? Tyrion, because the last couple times that they saw, they were, like, very... Very much not getting along publicly. Um, Tywin is, of course, being ever ever the diplomat is able to defuse it by playing it off with Tyrion being drunk. Also, we forgot to talk about, too, the scene between Tyrion and Tywin ultimately beforehand, which is, again, just like the humiliation just doesn't end. Where Tyrion doesn't want this. He knows that this is wrong. And Tywin kind of reminds him, like, look, you will do your duty at the end of the day. And Tyrion is trying to resist. He's like, man, can't a guy just enjoy anything? But Tywin ultimately has to defuse the situation. Tyrion plays it off like a joke, obviously because Joffrey is trying to get the betting ceremony done. And it's like Joffrey is, and Tyrion's like, "Look, we've both humiliated, been humiliated enough. We don't need to keep doing with this." Um, but yeah, so they ultimately go into the room, and uh, what's it called? Tyrion tries to start it, but he can't. He's he just shows he's too good of a person. He's like, "Look, I'm not going to do anything to you that you do not want to do. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to take advantage of you. Nothing like that. And if my father has a problem with that, and if, if my father wants something fucked, well, he can start with himself or something along those lines." It's a yeah, great, yeah, and also great like adage. Sansa asked the question, like, "Okay, like you know, you you basically just said you're never going to take me to bed unless I want to." What if I never want to, you know, go to bed with you? And he basically uh, says, well, then I guess my watch has started. You know, he makes a reference to to uh, the Night's Watch Watch and, you know, being celibate and and whatnot. And, um, you know, it's it's one of those things where it kind of clues us into, um, you know, that Tyrion has a sense of honor. Uh, Unfortunately, (laughs) you know, this show really doesn't do well for characters that have a sense of honor, Uh, you know, that that honor uh, usually is what gets them killed. Right. And so, you know, Tyrion at this point um, is showing that, you know, he's basically uh, acting that way. Uh, And I think that's what probably leaves him open for what happens um, early next season where he is basically uh, accused of the unthinkable. Absolutely. uh, At Joffrey's wedding. 
Yeah, the good thing about the about the le- next couple seasons as they start to deviate from the books is that even though the first three seasons shows like it seems like the good guys just cannot get a win, in the last couple seasons it shows that like man, karma is a bitch because at the end of the day these evildoers can only do so much because it starts with Joffrey in the first in, in the second episode of season four and then it ends with Ramsay at the end of season six. It's like these evildoers. Justice will come for all of them, even if they don't realize it in the end, ultimately. And it's kind of capped off by, like, this really cutesy scene. Obviously, Shay and Tyrion have not been having the best of times throughout this entire season. But ultimately, you know, Shay sees the bed and sees that, like, yeah, Tyrion and Sansa did absolutely nothing. And she kind of, like, has this brief moment and this little smile. So those are the majority of, like, the three big arcs. But there's one more scene before the episode wraps up. And again, it's it's so quick and brief that you would almost forget that it happened in this episode. But it ends up being so crucially important for the majority of the show. We check back in north of the wall, ultimately. It's a quick, brief scene with Sam and Gilly. We haven't seen them in a couple episodes. We've only been <laughs> yeah. checking in with them briefly since the whole revolt at Craster's, ultimately, earlier in the season. But, so basically, uh, we reinforce that Sam cannot light a fire. No, correct. 100%. <laughs> Sam he, cannot light a fire to save his own life. Yeah, do not trust him with the the matches or anything. Just he ain't gonna get it done. Yep, not gonna <laughs> you know, not so gonna get the job done. They they basically are wandering around the north. They find a cabin. Uh, they go in. Sam fails miserably. Um, you know, Gilly basically instantly creates a fire. But the whole time that they're doing this, um, you know, they're talking about what to name the baby, and you know, it's it's. Uh, what is it going to be? Uh, your father's name, Randall, uh, Tarly. Um, what is it? Caster, uh, you know, or, or Craster, whatever. Uh, you know, and it's one of those things where like uh, Sam is sort of stepping up to the plate here and, and being like, you know, counseling her as if they're, you know, uh, you know, married. And it's like, no, don't do that. That's bad. You know, whatever. Uh, and it really, they're starting to get uh, really personal with each other. Um, you know, and, and very, you know, uh, just comfortable, uh, you know, uh, being sort of together. Yeah. Uh, and then a bunch of crows. Bunch <laughs> oh of my crows. God. Well, I mean, the first thing just go nuts before the, um, before the whole conversation between them is obviously him breaking down the difference between, um, you know, obviously first and last names ultimately, which is that I think that it's, it's really, you know, kind of touching and heartfelt ultimately what, what comes from it, which is that, you know, they're breaking down the differences. Ultimately he explains like the difference between his dad's first and last name. And she's like, Oh, well, Randall's a nice name. And he's just kind of like, please don't name him Randall, please. I still love that. And she's like, she kind of sees the look on her face. He's able to like get across. Obviously he didn't, go through the horrors that she went through ultimately living with Crasser ultimately like he was never you know sexually abused by his father but the whole thing is that it's like yeah it's like but it's, it's like yeah he, she says like is your father cruel like mine was he's like different sort of cruel but she like understands that it's like yeah this this guy Randall Tarley who we don't see for another couple seasons is just bad news with just the way that he treated Sam ultimately but then you're right yeah, we, like we, we don't see him until he's basically incinerated uh, <laughs> you know? pretty much um, yeah we get like one uh, scene I guess, with him, but we get uh, yeah. one scene with him before uh, but what's it called yeah, yeah. In, in season 6 and then uh, in season 7 ultimately one one dinner before he is dinner um, before he is <laughs> So, uh, but basically, uh, yeah, you know, this scene is what, really what is well it, done. A like of crows, a pack of crows. Like it's, it's amazingly well done how it's set up kind of reinforcing like the horror tropes that the white walkers kind of bring with them. Ultimately, the one white walker comes out of the trees. Sam tries to repel it by trying to exude some form of bravado. That doesn't work at all. Yeah. We, we see the cool sword exploding, uh, trick, you know, like yes. the white walker grabs it, explodes, uh, basically just like bats him with one hand bats across the, side, the uh, yeah. You know, and uh, he's going straight for the baby. That's that's yep. what the White Walkers want. Oh man, Eric just brought up um, another recasting real quick that I forgot about. Sam's younger yeah. brother, Dickon. 
Harley gets recast. Goes from Harry Potter actor to Umbrella Academy actor. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. Those are those second actors that All show recasting. up in, uh, those uh, in this show. Yeah. So uh, yeah. anyway, at the end of the day, Sam gets back up. He has the dragon glass dagger in his uh, pocket, you know, and he just uh, lunges it into the shoulder blades of the White Walker. And, yep. you know, <laughs> basically Gilly and Sam just like dumbfoundedly look at the Run white walker it. as it scre- screams out in pain. It, like they're just standing there. Like, I guess he could kind of still kill us, but he looks hurt, right. <laughs> you know, the white walker is being, I feel like the white walker is almost looking at him. It's like, bitch, did I just get killed by this fucking fat kid right here? Like what just happened? But again, just um, crucially important. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if I would put it as crude as that, uh, Dom, but <laughs> you know, I, I guess that, could have been what's happening in this uh, demon creature's mind. Uh, yeah. But anyway, he, he basically just explodes, and that's, you know, that's that. Uh, yeah. You know, the whole, whole establishment obviously is the whole thing with the dragon glass, the fact that it's like, okay, so these things have been being built up for God only knows how long. But it's again, it's just brilliantly how they throw in the brief little layers, where it's like we had two scenes of these things being introduced as like kind of these unstoppable killing machines. They can kill anyone, right? They can bring anyone they want back to any human that they kill back to life. Ultimately, there's seemingly no way to stop these things. We know, obviously, that fire can stop the reanimated corpses, but we have no idea if anything can work effectively on these things. And ultimately, it's revealed at the end of the day. It's like, oh, shit, these dragon glass weapons that they found at the Fist of the First Men last season are revealed to be, like, something that they can actually use against these things, ultimately. And now it shows us, like, okay, that whatever's going to happen at the end, at the very least now, our heroes have a chance. But kind of the way that it's that, that it's constructed and the fact that also it's given to Sam, who is introduced as, like, one of the most pitiful, hopeless characters in there. It shows us, like, man, even the, even the, even the people who you know have the least expectations on them ultimately can maybe you know get a win in ultimately so that that's what makes this moment so satisfying yeah, on top and, of- and i think it, it also makes it satisfying because like uh we still don't know anything about the threat you know right uh, basically we know they're zombies we know they're scary uh you know we now know that they have a weakness uh, but we really don't know how many of them there are. We don't right. really know, uh, you know, we're never going to get a sense of like the fact that there's legitimately an army of zombies. Right. You know, we saw a little nice little troop uh, walking through the snow, you know, in previous episodes. Uh, but when you get to hard home and you see just the amount of the dead that he's collected, um, you know, that's when things start to really sink in. Uh, you know, it's like that and the reveal of of what they do with the babies, um, you know, uh, and when we first yeah. meet, when and we I, first think- meet the Night King, it's 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 nice how this is the third season, and it's such a slow burn of knowing what the show's ultimate evil is, uh, and you know, and then immediately picks up when it needs to. Absolutely, yeah, and especially considering that this is really the last time that we see the Walkers really in, like, kind of playing a major part in the season because, really, next season, the, the Walkers are almost kind of on the back burner because of how much the emphasis is put on the threat of the Wildlings with the attack on the wall being so imminent. They're really the only sequence of the Walkers that we get next season is the one scene of the baby being brought to, obviously, you know, that weird ice fortress in general and then being transformed into the White Walker. It's very interestingly shown how that happens. Yeah, the, the fortress kind of is solitude, right? Yeah, and it's honestly kind of it almost kind of works in their favor because of how minimal the kind of impetus is on them in season four. You almost forget about them and it just makes the attack on Hardhome when it happens even more surprising. But again, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. 
Um, because again, we will save that all for when we get to season five, ultimately, because again, there's gonna, I'm, I'm going to have a lot to talk about once we get to season five, ultimately, but that was it. That was our review and recap of season three, episode eight entitled second sons, ultimately a surprisingly fast paced and incredible episode. Ultimately, probably one of my favorites of these first three seasons. We'll be back next week, next week, people. It's game time. Ultimately, we've been building up to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's game time. Bring bring your, uh, bring your bring your popcorn. Your, bring, your, bring your popcorn. Bring, bring your, your foam finger. Bring your foam finger. Bring your Kleenex <laughs> boxes. Bring them all. It's red wedding time next week. It's the reigns of Castamir. Ultimately, we'll be back next week. Same time, same place. Eight o'clock p.m. sharp. In the meantime, thank you guys once again for tuning into another episode of Talking Thrones. Pat, working the good people. Follow you on the internet. Hey, listen, I'm here on Talking TV, uh, Talking Thrones with you, Dom, and hey, it's it's fun. Uh, and I have you know an Instagram account at Patrick W Huber. If you want to follow me and wait for my post to drop, it will happen. Just not today. Just not but, today. <laughs> um, I will post some photos uh, when I get around to it. Uh, but hey, you know you can subscribe if you want to, and eventually I'll I'll be posting. Uh, other than that, uh, you know, hey, this was a great episode. Yes, let's, absolutely let's, great episode. Let's get ready for next week. Let's get ready to rumble. Last two episodes, penultimate, and then the finale. Ultimately, in the following episode, I still can't believe that we just we're, we're already pretty much almost done with season three. It still feels like yesterday that we just started this. Ultimately, you can follow me at Movie Nerd Reviews on Facebook and Instagram. I just actually posted, surprise enough, this is like the the closest that I've made to posts ultimately recently with my most recent two posts on my Instagram. You can also follow us primarily on the Talking TV podcast, social media profiles at Talking TV podcast, Facebook and Instagram. And also be sure to click the subscribe button, click the like button, click the bell next to it. That way you guys get notified every time we put up new content, which we give to you guys every day. Um, what's it called for what's it called for you the people the content that you deserve we're almost done with 2021 it's kind of crazy we're already halfway through november we've only got six weeks left of the year ultimately so stay tuned for all of the content we still got a lot of content planned for you guys for the rest of the year we'll see you guys ultimately on the way to the throne see you guys next time 12 seasons in a short film and watch more fucking movies